Well, today we're going to do something a little bit different than is typical for us. Uh, Rather than looking at at one particular text, we're kind of going to look at a lot of text. We're going to consider several chapters of Scripture today. Um, If you've been with us throughout the fall, we have been studying Nehemiah. If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, Really glad you're here. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Covenant. And uh, we've been looking at Nehemiah, basically uh, just section of text by section of text, a small section of text at a time. And today we're really going to look at kind of the back half of the book. We'll we'll be kind of considering the the whole breadth of chapter 7 through 13. Um, And I actually think it's kind of a good way to look at the Bible. Uh, It's good to be able to read the Bible slowly. Um, But it's also good to be able to read the Bible quickly, if you will, in in terms of just considering the the nature of the broader story that's going on. I heard John Piper one time talk about this, and I like the way the illustration he gave. You know, he said, if you go to Florida, you, you can get on a plane and fly above Florida and look down and see the beach. And if you get really high in the plane, you can kind of see the curve. Um, down where Miami and Fort Lauderdale is. You know, if you get on a, if you go to space and look down on Florida, you can actually see the whole peninsula and say, man, that is Florida. But it's also good to not do that, to, to land the plane and to walk into Florida and to go to an orange grove in Florida and go to one particular tree and pick an orange and take a bite of that orange and, and think to yourself, well, this is Florida. You know, and, and the Bible is kind of like that. Uh, and with Florida, you know, you could go on a boat ride or go to one of the Florida beaches or ride on Space Mountain. It's, it's all Florida. And it all tells you something differently, different about the state of Florida. And I think in the same way, uh, reading the Bible fast, reading the Bible slow, there's times where we consider just one word of Scripture and, and really dive into it. There's times where we need to look at kind of the whole broader narrative of the whole Bible and what are themes that we continue to see. Um, So today is is more like that. It it may not be a a plane ride, but it's at least a boat ride or maybe a ride on Space Mountain. And we're going to look at several chapters of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, So one of the things that I've been telling you um, is that you need to be following the story arc that's what's going on in these different stories. And if you spend much time reading the Old Testament, it can be very frustrating. Uh, a few years ago, I read the book Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's a great historian, and I've enjoyed some things that she's written. Um, but she wrote this book a few years ago, and, and she basically looked at Lincoln. She looked at both Roosevelt's. She looked at Johnson. And the way that she told it was pretty interesting. She had basically, the the book was in three major sections, ambition. So she looked at the ambitions and the gifts, the leadership of all four of those leaders. And then the next one was struggle or um, a time of um, adversity that they had to go through. And for each of those four leaders, she looked at all these trials that they had to go through that made them into the great leaders that they became. And then the last section, I think I have it on the slide, was success that 
was very much, they overcame those struggles. They became the successful leaders that we know and love for them to appreciate to be today. And we like stories like that. One of the reasons that I like that book is that I like that kind of narrative arc, right? There, yes, of course there's some struggle, but we overcome the struggle, right? And then everything is good and happy at the end. And, and because we like stories like that, because you want your life to go to like that, go like that, because you enjoy a narrative flow like that, the book of Nehemiah and really the whole Old Testament can be incredibly frustrating. I uh, have told you throughout this series also to pay attention to when you read the Old Testament, themes, signs, and promises. So when you read the Old Testament, pick up on the themes. There's a lot of themes that kind of trace throughout the entirety of the Old Testament canon. Signs. There, there's oftentimes signs that are symbolic of those themes. It's actually the signs that help you pay attention to the themes. And then, of course, the final is promises. Pay attention to when God says he's going to do something. And we've, we've definitely seen those ideas on display in the study of Nehemiah. And, and I've tried to show you the, the, these things on display in the macro study of Ezra-Nehemiah. So while we spent most of our time in the first few chapters of Nehemiah, we've looked at this larger book. So if you've been with us, I've explained that Ezra and Nehemiah used to not be two different books. They were kind of the same book. And I actually think it's, it's easier to understand what's going on if you think of them as one whole book. And, and they're, they're actually categorizing for us themes, signs, and promises. So the first movement in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah happens in the beginning of Ezra. This is after the exile of the people of Israel. They're going back from Babylonian captivity to the promised land. And Zerubbabel goes back and rebuilds the temple. And that's very important because the temple was a sign of a very important theme that's related to a promise that God has given his people, that he would be with his people, that his presence would be among his people. The presence of God being among the people of God is a theme that you see throughout uh, the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. And the sign of that in the Old Testament was the temple. So Zerubbabel going back and rebuilding the temple was important. The second kind of movement that we see, this is also in the book of Ezra, is that Ezra goes back and reads the law. And this is also important. Obedience, the people of God following the way of God, living in accordance with God's design, with God's order. This is really important all throughout the narrative. And the sign of obedience is the law of God, the law that God had delivered to the people. So Ezra reading the law is incredibly important. It picks up in the story. And then here's Nehemiah. This is what we've been looking at, this third movement. Nehemiah goes back and repairs the walls of Jerusalem. Why? Another theme, God's people, when his presence is among them, when they're obeying his law, are a display of his kingdom, of his character, of his glory. And the whole world is able to know God through his people. And the sign of this kingdom, more than anything else in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is destroyed. The sign of the kingdom people is gone. So that's what we've been looking at. Nehemiah going back and restoring this. And we came to the end of the passage last week and it was kind of an exciting time. You, you kind of think to yourself, okay, this is happening. This is good. God is restoring. God is fulfilling his promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you and your offspring great. And I'm going to make, I'm going to bring a blessing to the whole world through you and your offspring. 
And we, of course, we know that that was the ambition. But then there was the struggle section, right? They fell away. They sinned. They had to go to exile. But it, it feels like a Doris Kearns Goodwin story. It's like, okay, I know where this is going. They're going to become president, right? The Israelites are going to be restored. They're going to have the success that they were supposed to have. And the story kind of feels like it's going to go that way. After the wall's been restored, as we saw last week, in the rest of chapter 7, we see the exiles returning. Their confidence in Jerusalem, their confidence in this kingdom is back. But it gets even better. In chapter 8, Nehemiah teams up with Ezra, and they read the law again. They celebrate the Feast of Booths. Some of y'all have heard the Feast of Booths. You read about that in the New Testament. It's a celebration of the presence of God. So, ah, here we see another one of these themes we're supposed to pay attention to, right? They're celebrating that the presence of God is with them. They're reading the law. They're celebrating the presence of God. And what happens? Confession. Chapter 9 is this amazing confession of sin from the people of Israel. And they not only confess their sins, but they confess the sins of their fathers. And you're reading this and you're like, okay, like, <laughs> this is awesome. They've got it. Like, they're there. They are obeying the Lord. They're worshiping the Lord. They realize what God's done for them. And this is, this is, this is, this is right. And it gets even better. Chapter 10, God makes this covenant with them. And you're thinking, is this it? Is this the, the kingdom of God that has come? Chapter 11, we see the peace made between the leaders of, uh, the, leaders of the, the, king, the, the leaders of the people in Jerusalem and the leaders of the people outside of Jerusalem. So there's peace in the whole land. And then in chapter 12, the dedication of the walls. Man, what a day. They have come through everything. They have had adversity and struggle. Everybody counted them out, right? But now they're back in Jerusalem and they're reading the law and they're worshiping and they're confessing and they have this great celebration. The dedication of these walls that they worked so hard to build. Y'all been with us. There was so much struggle. So much oppression came against them. And we read... In Nehemiah 12, 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Again, if you know your Bibles, if you've been paying attention to themes, signs and promises, you read this passage and you're like, ah, the covenant with Abraham. It's been fulfilled. God has blessed his people. God is letting his power and his glory be known through his people. And all the earth is hearing of the blessing of God. This is it. The kingdom has come. But sadly, <laughs> the book doesn't end in chapter 12. So in chapter 13, end of chapter 12, beginning of 13, Nehemiah goes back to Artaxerxes, which is, which is actually kind of an amazing thing. He, he told Artaxerxes in the very beginning, this Persian king, let me go back to my homeland, rebuild the walls, and when I finish, I'll come back and serve you. And that's exactly what he does. It, it actually shows this great measure of Nehemiah's integrity that he honored his word to Artaxerxes and went back to go and be with him. But after a time, he comes back. Now, we don't know how long the time is. Will Kynes was here teaching Old Testament. 
this week. He's, in my opinion, Will's one of the best Old Testament scholars in the world. And he was here and I said, Will, how long was Nehemiah away? And Will didn't know, so we don't know, you know? <laughs> no, we don't know. I mean, but you would assume that it was not a really long time, but sometime. I'm going to, let's say it was about a year. Now, remember the themes, remember the signs, temple, presence of God, law, obedience to God, kingdom, wall, Jerusalem walls, kingdom of God, right? So Nehemiah comes back and what does he find? Well, he first walks in and, and here's what's amazing. He goes to the temple. And I'm just going to abbreviate chapter 13 for you. He goes to the temple and they've taken one of the rooms while he was away serving on Xerxes, like he said he would do. They've taken one of the rooms in the temple, the temple, the dwelling place of God. They've taken one of the rooms that was built for them to bring grain offerings. It was a room to store grain offerings for God, okay? And they've taken that room and they've gotten all the offerings out of there and they've set it up as a chamber, as a house, if you will, as a place to lodge for who? Okay, well, if you've read Nehemiah, if you've been with us, you know the answer. Who is the worst possible person that Nehemiah would want in the temple of God? Like who is the last person that Nehemiah would say that person could come anywhere near the temple of God? And of course, you were here last week, you know the answer. It's Tobiah the Ammonite, his arch nemesis, his rival, this guy that has given him so much frustration. He goes away for a year. He comes back to the temple of God and they've cleared out a room that was meant to be used for grain offerings to the Lord and they've set up a house for Tobiah in the temple of God. I mean, I can't imagine what's going through Nehemiah's head when he sees this. And we learn in verse eight, I think this is a little bit of an understatement. He says, I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. This is his, if you will, cleansing of the temple moment. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. So remember the themes. <laughs> Nehemiah comes back. He's only been away a year. And already this symbol, the temple, the presence of the God symbol is being defiled. Now, maybe you think, okay, well, I'm sure they just messed up there. But the rest of the stuff they're doing good in, right? No, it gets worse. The next thing he finds out is the law of God is being broken. People were supposed to bring offerings so that the Levites, the priests, didn't have to work. They were able to use their time and energy and attend to the temple. Why is this important? Because the temple is important. And there needed to be people that were focused on the temple. They were going to preserve the integrity of the temple. But people weren't bringing their offerings. Look at verse 10. He says, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. This is all chapter 13, if you're with us. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So the priests, rather than serve the temple like God's word said they were, because people are bringing their offerings, are having to go out into the field and they're, gonna have, they're having to support their family somehow. But all the while, the temple is being neglected. And this is a direct violation of the word of God. But it gets even worse. In those days, I saw the people of Judah, verse 15, treading wine presses on the Sabbath. So what's happened here? They've neglected the, the temple, the presence of God. They're disobeying the Sabbath by not bringing in the tithes and offerings for the Levites. The Levites aren't there. They're out in the field. So no one's preserving the temple. And the people are just overtly breaking the Sabbath by pressing the wine. 
and bringing heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loaves which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrians also, Tyrians are foreigners. So now foreigners are in the city who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. <laughs> so the temple is being defiled. The law of God's being broken overtly. They're coming in and doing trade. They're, they're working on the Sabbath. It's a direct violation of what God told them to do, but it gets even worse. I can almost imagine Nehemiah seeing all this. He sees that the temple's been messed up. They're disobeying the law. And at one point he has this little thought in his mind. He's like, but the walls... <laughs> Of course, the walls, the walls that we work so hard for. Of course, of course, nothing's going on with them. And of course, that's exactly what's happening is the people aren't obeying his commands on the walls. They're not shutting down the walls as he told them to. They're not closing up the gates on the Sabbath and the people coming inside and worshiping the Lord. And they're not because the people have set up shops alongside the walls. The walls were such a feature that people said, well, I can start a business here. This is prime real estate now and make good money. And they didn't close the shops on the Sabbath. They didn't bring their goods in. They just kept the doors open. They kept the markets going. But it gets even worse. Finally, Nehemiah sees that they're marrying foreign women again. Now, uh, this is important if you've kind of been following the narrative arc with us. The, the, the previous high point in the people of Israel was the reign of King David. And after David, his son Solomon came to reign and brought in foreign wives. And through those foreign wives, sin entered into the house of God. So that's exactly what Nehemiah says. Look at verse 25, a very powerful passage. He says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by God and God made him king over all Israel. Yet nevertheless, foreign women made him even sin, made even him sin. Shall then we listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying these foreign women. We've come full circle. God had blessed the people of Israel. They were so blessed under David. They allowed sin to creep in. It started this cycle of destruction where ultimately they lost the kingdom. They lost the land. They lost the temple. And here God has so faithfully restored them. He's brought them back. He's resettled them. He's given them a temple. He's reestablished the law. He's reestablished the city of Jerusalem. And what do they do? They go and do the exact same thing that cost them in the first place. In the end of the book, that's the end of the book. And Nehemiah ends the book by saying, remember me, God. <laughs> Basically like, I tried. Remember me. I tried. I told you. The Old Testament is not very satisfying. It's got all these really sad endings. I would even say confusing endings. Like, 
what are we supposed to do with this? You know, am I supposed to dismiss you now? <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I, I think that there's many things that the Lord is teaching us in this, but, but two that I want to think about with you today. And these are very profound ideas. The, the ideas of fear and love. I think if we'll listen to this story, we'll listen to these texts, we can learn a lot about each and the Lord will be pleased. But I think that if we don't listen, we are destined to follow these same sins. So let's start with fear. Now, the idea of fear comes up a lot in the book of Nehemiah. Um, there's a lot of this idea of the fear of the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 11, Nehemiah prays. I'm paraphrasing these, but he says, Be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Nehemiah 5.9, ought you not walk in the fear of our God? Nehemiah 5.15, I did not lay heavy burdens on the people because of the fear of God. Nehemiah 7.2, Hananiah was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Now we've talked about this, but I think that this idea of the fear of the Lord is so important. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over the scriptures. And I think people are confused by it. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Fear is a bad emotion. It's not the kind of emotion that I'm supposed to have toward the Lord. Well, the Hebrew for fear is yirah. And yirah is related to awe or reverence. It, it has, the, the fear of the Lord has everything to do with what do you revere? What are you in awe of? What has your attention? I like to say it this way. What holds weight in your life? The Hebrew for glory is kavod. What is worthy? What is glorious is kavod. It's heavy. It's weighty. It's big. It's whatever it is that holds weight in your life that controls you, that you're in awe of, that you revere, that you fear. It's interesting, this week, actually today, our scripture memory verse is about the fear of the Lord, or about fear at least. It's, uh, if you listen to our daily rhythm, you've heard this this morning, if you've already listened from 2 Timothy 1.7, for our God gave us a spirit, not of fear, fear of the things of the world, but of power and love and self-control. How are Christians supposed to live like this? How are Christians to be the kind of people that aren't ruled by our fear, but people of power and of love and of self-control? You know, it's not, it's not that Christians don't live in a world of fearful things, right? It's not that when we trust God, he takes away all of the fearful things in the world, right? So Christians, I got this little scale and I think this is helpful to illustrate this. Um, this is just a little toy, but it's a scale, and it'll work. So, we live in a world where there are things that we fear. There are real issues, real strains. There's financial strains, right? There's relational strains. There's strains in the workplace. There's strains among your friends. There's, strain, there's political strains. There's, there's global strains. What's going on? What's going to happen? And, and these things can weigh us down, right? These things can consume us. We can begin to 
revere these things, be in awe of these things. They, they have this controlling force in our lives. But Christians are the kind of people that understand that the way to overcome fear is not that God comes in and somehow removes these things from our lives. Now, the way that we overcome fear is that we actually have a bigger fear, a greater fear, a fear of the Lord. We have this other, I don't even know if this is going to work, but <laughs> we have this greater weight that we've assigned to God. And therefore, all of these other little things actually kind of seem light. We can maneuver the world with poise and with self-control and with love and with patience, not being overcome these things. It's not that Christians ever get rid of these things. It's that we understand what they really are in perspective to the greater weight, the one who's actually in control. You know, you know Israel's problem wasn't the Ammonites, right? The, the people of Judah, the problem wasn't there were Ammonites out there. Tobiah. Their problem wasn't that they didn't have enough time during the week to press the wine. Their problem wasn't that there were these foreign women out there that were beautiful, and if you married them, there was power in that. No, that wasn't their problem. Their problem was they had assigned the wrong weight to those things, and they had assigned the wrong weight to God. They believed that the Ammonites were weightier than God. They believed that working seven days and not obeying the law of God would actually make them happy. They'd have more, and that's what would make them happy, more than God could. They believed that marrying these women, that would fulfill their desires. That would bring them joy and not the Lord. Their problem was they assigned the wrong weights to things. And here's the deal. And so will you. And so will I. This is ultimately what sin is. Is <laughs> when we assign the wrong weight, we fear the wrong thing. And if, and, and if you're not, if, you, if this is not assigned rightly, if God is not the weightier fear, you'll always do this. And look, this is hard. I mean, we live in a world where it's hard to assign weights rightly. Graham Thompson sent me this article that was on the Gospel Coalition this morning. Um, and it, it was about the fastest growing religion. I don't know if you saw this, by Thaddeus Williams. The fastest growing religion in the world, Thaddeus Williams wrote, is self-worship. And it's a little tongue-in-cheek. He kind of uses confessional and you know, kind of religious language to talk about self-worship. But he, he gives the six commandments of self-worship. Commandment number one, your mind is the source of and standard of truth. So matter what, trust yourself. Hashtag follow your heart. Commandment number two, or uh, sorry, the answer is within. Commandment number two, your emotions are authoritative. So never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Hashtag follow your heart. Commandment number three, you are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Hashtag live your truth. 
Number four, you are supreme. So always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag YOLO. You are summum bonum, the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with their antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. Hashtag never change. Commandment number six, you are creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose. Hashtag authenticity. This is the water that we swim in. This is the religion that is around us. In the same way that the people of Israel were around the Ammonites and around all of these other people, we live in a world like this. And when you're, like, when you're in a world like this, just like the people of Israel world, just like we are, it's very easy to get this wrong. To, to, begin to, to begin to think, oh yeah, I am sovereign. I, my feelings are right. I am weighty. You know the problem with self-worship? Everybody wants to rule the world, right? Hashtag tears for fears. <laughs> but we can't pull it off. The problem is we're not sovereign, right? We're not moral. <laughs> we're not authentic. We don't really understand ourselves. We, we want to think of ourselves as if we can, but the problem is, is we're not. We're not sovereign. We're not strong enough to do this. And so the smallest little trouble that comes our way will what? Totally throw us off will totally mess up. That's why, that's why the smallest little fears can, can be so totally disruptive and you start throwing, what is anyone to do? And this is also why worship is so important. Why what you're doing now is so right. You need this. I need this. We need to hear from God's authoritative word. We need to be praying together. We need to be singing songs like this. Though Satan should buffet. Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control have weight in your life that Christ has regarded your helpless estate and has shed his own blood for your soul. If you sing that and you believe that, guess what? All of a sudden, God has the right weight again in your life. And all of this stuff becomes very light. It's why personal devotion it's so important. I, I need to be reminded of this. I need to be reassigned, if you will, what my actual weight is and what God's weight is every single day of my life. It's why church discipline is so important. We need to help one another to do this. The, the corporate nature of the body of Christ is so important. I, I need to hear you singing, it is well with my soul because I know the Lord. We need this. We need to be stirring one another along. You know, this week on the Our Daily Rhythm, Al Mohler joined us and we read through the book of Jude together. And I think it was Friday, we read the very end of Jude and we were talking about the passage there at the end of Jude where Jude talks about snatching one another from the fire. And Dr. Mohler said, what if we thought of church discipline like that? That, that, that our lives being intertwined with other Christians where we can be stirring one another along, correcting one another if necessary against our sin, against our misassignment of weight that happens all the time in our life, 
because we're snatching one another from the fire. We're snatching one another from uh, decisions and patterns of decisions that will ultimately lead to great destruction. This passage has a lot to teach us about fear. Do you fear the Lord, right? Have you assigned the right weight to him? Or are the Ammonites and the wine presses and the foreign women of your life calling out to you louder and you're assigning more weight to them than you are to the Lord? But this passage also teaches us a lot about love. Nehemiah 1243 again. Let's look at that passage together. This great triumphant moment. And they offered the great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This great day, the promises have been fulfilled. But just a short while later, we don't know how long, but just a short while later, they had totally forgotten. They had totally forsaken the things of the Lord. You're like, oh, what's going on here? But you know what? I get this. I, I understand this. It's a question of love, really. I understand this as a fan, right? I, I am totally disinterested in Auburn football right now, right? <laughs> I see the Mississippi State shout-outs out there. Hey, go dogs. Give it to Mike Leach. But anyway, two weeks ago, I was on the top of the world. I was like, we're going to beat Alabama. We're going to beat Georgia. We're going to win the national championship. And now I'm, my heart is broken again. <laughs> you know, we get this as Braves fans. Right now, you know, I signed the boys up for baseball this week. And everybody was like, you got to sign up. Day one, more kids are playing baseball this spring than ever. So I wanted to get in there. I wanted to get in the line. I don't want the boys to miss out. But everybody's want to play baseball right now. Why? Because the Braves are the world champions. We're the best team in the entire world. And everybody wants to be a Braves fan. And everybody wants to play baseball. And everybody wants to be like Freddie Freeman. But where were you in 2015? <laughs> you know. Where were you in 2016? We were last in the division when horrible teams like the Nats were beating us. <laughs> Jordan Coughlin's a secret Nats fan. Um, um, this passage actually teaches us a lot about love. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Do you love God? Do you really love God or do you only love the things of God? Do you love God or do you only love God when he's doing something neat? When the wall's being dedicated? Oh man, yes! The wall, we built the wall, look at us. This is great. But, but do you really love God? Or do you only love him in these triumphant moments? Do you really love him just in the normal times? Just in the mundane times? Everybody loves God when something awesome is going on. But what does obedience look like in the normal days? What does faithfulness look like in the normal times? I think the church actually makes this mistake, right? We know people are like this. We know people only love God when he's neat. And so we're all the time saying, God is neat. God is neat. God is neat. God is neat. Follow him. He's neat. When really, where God is glorified in your life, 
when God is glorified in your life is when you get diagnosed with cancer, when your friend dies, when you don't get the promotion, when you don't do, you don't get the grade that you thought you should get in school and you say, God is worthy, God is weighty. When God is glorified in your life is a mundane Thursday morning when you get up and you spend time with him because you know that man cannot live on bread alone. It's those times when the Lord is really, really, you really prove that you love him and not just what he give you. You prove that you love him and not just yourself. It's not just your ego you're worshiping. It's actually the Lord that you're worshiping. It's actually the Lord that you're counting on, the Lord that you're trusting in. The Old Testament's frustrating, but it's not because God isn't showing up. God shows up all the time in the Old Testament. He's always doing these big and powerful things. The Old Testament is frustrating. It's not because people weren't necessarily devoted. I mean, there's oftentimes pictures of a lack of devotion, but there's a lot of devotion in the Old Testament. Probably a lot more effort than most of us give in terms of the pursuit of God. Now, the Old Testament is frustrating is because the people didn't really love God. And the answer is they really couldn't love God because they had hearts made of stone. And without the grace of God, so do you. And so do I. We have hearts of stone. The condition of our heart in sin is that we really don't love God. We just love self. We only love God when we perceive that he may be able to help us. And the same is true with the people of Nehemiah, which is why this book ends in such a frustrating way. When God is neat, when there's a wall, they love him. But normal times, normal times they forsake him. But the book doesn't end without any hope. Before Nehemiah came, there was another prophet. And you have to read these narratives with the prophets in mind. And it was Ezekiel. And there's a passage I want to look at from Ezekiel 36, where I believe part of it is fulfilled, but part of it is yet to be fulfilled. Ezekiel 36, 24 Ezekiel, on behalf of God, says, I will take you from among the nations. I will gather you out of the countries, right? I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring you into your own land. I think in the, people would read this at the time of Nehemiah and say, yes, this is happening. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. And when the people were confessing their sin and worshiping the Lord in the temple, I, I'm sure they were saying, yes, the words of Ezekiel are ringing true. But here's the part, here's the part that God was yet to do. Verse 26, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. What do the people need? to follow God, to love God? Did they need him to take the Ammonites away? Did they need him to show up in another big way and build another wall? No, they just needed a new heart. They needed a new heart. They needed a heart of flesh. They needed God to change their heart. And this, this is the good news that I have for you today. 
the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform your heart. To not just do something that you think is neat, but to literally remake you. The, the hope of the new birth, that you would actually get a new heart. This is the power that Jesus brings. You know, there's a lot of similarities between Nehemiah and Jesus. We were talking about this week, the, the temple cleansing scene. When Nehemiah goes in there and cleanses Tobias stuff out of the temple, it's like Jesus. When he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple, they'd made the house of God into a house of trade. And all through the book, we've been showing you the similarities between Nehemiah and Jesus, but there's also some very big differences. At the end of this book, Nehemiah goes to God and he says, look at these people. They're faithless, but I have been faithful. In the end of the book, Nehemiah goes to the people and he says, what are you doing? And he beats them and yells at them and rips out their hair, humiliates their heads is what Jesus is doing there. I mean, Nehemiah is doing there. Humiliates their heads. On account of my faithfulness, Nehemiah says, remember me. But here's where Jesus is different. That's how Nehemiah ends. But the, the end of the gospel, as it were, is this. Is that Jesus on a bloody cross cries out to God. Jesus, who was totally faithful, who never sinned. And he says, as it were, on account of my faithfulness, remember them. God, on account of my faithfulness, remember them. And he doesn't come to us and yell at us and beat us and humiliate our heads. In fact, he was the one that was yelled at and beat, had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. On account of us, he was persecuted on account of him, we are set free on account of them, Father. On account of me, rather, Father. Remember them. Remember them. This is what Jesus says to you. This is what the gospel says to you. And if that's true, if the God of this universe has demonstrated love for you like that, that in his own son, he would take on all of the sin of our lives. You know, in the first service, we had baptisms. We're about to have baptisms in this service. And somebody said, you know what should happen is Jason should hold me under and not pull me up. And it was a great confession of sin. That is what, that is the symbolism of baptism. It is, we deserve to die, but Christ has rescued us. And I was talking to that person after the service and I said, you know, the truth of the matter is, if I really did know the depths of your heart, I probably would want to do that. <laughs> and I was like, and if you were baptizing me, if you really knew the depths of my heart, you'd probably be like, who, who is this guy? How does this guy think he could call himself a Christian? The amazing thing about Jesus, he knows the depths of your heart. He should come at, at us yelling and beating and humiliating our heads. And yet he comes to us and he says to his father, on account of me and my faithfulness, 
remember them. And if that's happened to you, and if you believe that, that will transform your heart. That will give you new That will free you of this religion of self-love that is so pervasive. And you will start to see the weight and the fullness and the glory of God who's shown himself to us in his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, all that we can learn from Nehemiah, all that we as faithful people can learn from other faith, all that we as faithless people can learn from other faithless people. But Father, I thank you that we have an even better advocate than Nehemiah, Jesus himself, who hasn't just taught us and modeled us and and sacrificed for us. He sacrifices himself for us in the most difficult kind of way. I pray that as we look to him, you would change our hearts. You would give us a new heart, not a heart of stone that only loves self, but a heart of flesh. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.